Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we continue our coverage of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the white police officer who is on trial for the murder of George Floyd. Last week, witnesses for the prosecution made emotional testimony. This week, prosecution witnesses are taking a closer look at police policies and the use of force. And some say prosecution witnesses this week have given an opening for Siobhan's defense. We speak with Carissa Lewis, the National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives. Also, the crisis in Yemen. Our guest is Iman Saleh, a member of the Yemeni Liberation Movement. And the Biden administration makes a major push to encourage people of color to be vaccinated. This as cases are again on the rise. We speak with Latang Hopes, media relations specialist for uh, FEMA. And of course, uh, FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. That is Latanja Hopes. Also, our weekly Earth Minute. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Joe Biden has advanced his deadline by two weeks for states to make all adults eligible for coronavirus vaccines by April 19th. Christopher Martinez reports. President Joe Biden announced another milestone. 150 million Americans have received at least one vaccination shot, well on the way to his goal of 200 million shots in his first 100 days in office. By no later than April 19th, in every part of this country... Every adult over the age of 18 18 or older will be eligible to be vaccinated. Biden says by that date, April 19th, adults will be able to, in his words, get in line, even though actually administering vaccinations will take some time. He says by the end of May, the vast majority of Americans will have gotten at least one shot. And he's looking ahead to a time when we have more vaccines than the nation needs. My hope is, before the summer's over, I'm talking to you all about how we have even access to more vaccines than we need, and we're helping other poor countries. Biden says despite the good news, now is not the time to get complacent and let up on precautions against the pandemic. He says it's still a life-and-death race between vaccinations and the new virus variants. I'm Christopher Martinez. Governor Gavin Newsom says California is preparing to lift most pandemic restrictions on businesses and workplaces by June 15th. With the expectation of an abundance of doses coming in from the federal government through the end of this month and into May, we can confidently say by June 15th that we can start to open up as business as usual. Subject to ongoing mask wearing and ongoing vigilance. Most capacity limits for businesses and recreational activities will be lifted, although large indoor events such as conventions will be allowed only with testing or vaccination verification requirements. 
Brazilian COVID-19 deaths have surpassed 4,000 in a 24-hour period for the first time ever. The COVID death toll in Brazil is quickly approaching 340,000, the second highest in the world after the U.S. India has reported a record daily surge in new coronavirus cases for the second time in four days. More than 115,000 cases. New Delhi, Mumbai, and dozens of other cities are imposing curfews to try to slow the soaring infections. Prosecutors in the murder and manslaughter trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin are expected to bring medical experts to the stand today. The prosecutors will be seeking to prove that George Floyd died because Chauvin knelt on his neck for more than nine minutes and not because of his drug use. Yesterday, a Minneapolis police officer who instructs others on the use of force testified that Chauvin's knee to the neck of George Floyd was not an approved technique for restraining suspects. In separate testimony, the police official in charge of training officers on handling crises said Chauvin received extensive training and how to recognize someone in crisis and calm them down. The New York Times reports that Florida Republican Matt Gates asked the White House for a blanket pardon for himself and unidentified allies for any crimes he may have committed. The request reportedly came in the final weeks of the Trump presidency. It's not clear that Gates was aware at the time that the Justice Department was investigating reports that he had sexually trafficked and had sex with a 17-year-old underage girl. The Times reports that Gates did not tell White House aides he was under investigation. The report says aides told Trump of the Gates pardon request. It's not clear whether Gates ever discussed it directly with Trump. Gates has been a vocal supporter of the former president. Arkansas Republican lawmakers have made the state the first to ban gender-confirming treatments and surgery for transgender youth. They quickly overrode Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson's veto of the bill. The measure prohibits doctors from providing hormone treatment, puberty blockers, or surgery to anyone under 18 years old or from referring them to other providers for the treatment. Opponents have vowed to sue to block the measure before it takes effect this summer. The ban is opposed by medical and child welfare groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics. California could become the second state after Oregon to decriminalize the possession and personal use of certain psychedelics. San Francisco State Senator Scott Wiener's legislation passed its first committee on a vote of four to one. The legislation would also expunge any criminal records for people convicted of possession or personal use of the substances. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, Monday, April 5th, marked day six of the trial of Derek Chavon, the white police officer who is being charged with the murder of 46-year-old George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota in May of 2020 is when the murder took place. On Monday, the chief of the Minneapolis Police Department testified that Siobhan had absolutely violated department policies when he knelt on George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Uh, The police chief added that Siobhan had failed to follow policies on de-escalation, use of force, and the duty to render aid to people who need it. 
also on Monday, Dr. Branford uh, Lagenfield, who tried to save George Floyd's life for 30 minutes before pronouncing him dead, testified that he believed uh, Mr. Floyd had likely died of a lack of oxygen. Dr. Lagenfeld said that George Floyd's heart was not beating by the time he arrived at the hospital. Also, Siobhan's former training director said he should have been taught to offer medical aid. On Tuesday, April 6th, day seven of Siobhan's trial, witnesses summoned by the prosecution offered a closer look at police policies on the use of force. Let us go to a clip now from CNBC on the latest on the trial. At the heart of the Derek Chauvin case, the whole trial, did he use excessive force with his knee on George Floyd's neck, or was it appropriate under the circumstances? That's the case. The Minneapolis police instructor who trained Chauvin on chokeholds and use of force took the stand at the now-fired officer's murder trial today. Prosecutors showed an image of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck, and the use of force trainer testified that it was not an authorized technique and that they do not teach it to officers. Would it be appropriate and within training to hold a subject in that prone, restrained position with a knee on the neck and a knee on the back for an extended period of time after the subject has stopped offering any resistance? No, sir. Or has uh, lost their pulse? No, sir. The prosecutors also fought in their first outside expert witness, or brought him in, a sergeant with the Los Angeles Police Department who specializes in use of force. He said Chauvin's actions were excessive, especially considering George Floyd was accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill. NBC's Gabe Gutierrez live outside the courthouse for us tonight. Gabe? Uh, hey there, Chef. From a rainy Minneapolis, and you're right, the prosecution had called officer after officer from the Minneapolis Police Department, but this time, late today, brought in an outside expert from the LAPD who said what Derek Chauvin did was excessive. Mr. Floyd was accused of uh, having a counterfeit $20 bill. And how does the, uh, that particular offense or the severity of the offense relate to the appropriateness of the force to be used against him? Oh, uh, typically, uh, in a normal situation where you're dealing with someone that's a counterfeiter or someone who is uh, using a counterfeit bill, uh, typically you wouldn't even expect to use any type of force. Derek Chauvin's defense team continued to insist that an angry crowd of bystanders distracted the officers and that Floyd died due to his drug use and underlying medical conditions. But today, Chauvin's attorney was more aggressive during cross-examination, and he brought up a picture, a training picture, of an officer placing his knee on the neck and shoulders of a suspect. This is a specific kind of photograph that demonstrates the placement of a knee as it applies to prone handcuffing, correct? Correct. And ultimately, if that person were to be handcuffed and circumstances dictated, the officer would be permitted to continue to hold his knee in that same position. Agreed? Uh, I would say uh, yes. Uh, however, we've cautioned officers that be mindful of the neck area. Today's testimony was more technical than some of the emotional testimony we saw last week. According to a pool reporter inside the courtroom, at least one of the jurors appeared to be sleeping at one point, several others yawning.
According to the transcript of body camera video from the more than nine minutes that Siobhan knelt on George Floyd's neck, an officer at the scene said, quote, I'm concerned about excited delirium or whatever. Uh, excited delirium is characterized by agitation, aggression, acute distress, and sudden death, often in pre-hospital care settings. Now, this argument, uh, for some reason, has not been validated uh, medically, but it seems to be one that is used quite a bit in uh, on when it comes to the death of black people under uh, police custody. Meanwhile, Eric J. Nelson, Siobhan's defense attorney, attempted to back up his argument that the crowd of people on the sidewalk are really to blame uh, during uh, George Floyd's takedown, that they made it harder for Siobhan to, for some reason, provide medical aid or to move his knee. This is very strange considering people were pleading with Siobhan to remove his knee and to offer George Floyd some assistance. And um, although the first week of the trial featured emotional testimony from bystanders, Tuesday's trial date kicked off the debate over whether Siobhan did indeed violate uh, police policy. Now, there are some of the prosecution witnesses um, who some are claiming bolster Siobhan's defense. For example, Nicole McKenzie, the medical support coordinator for the Minneapolis Police Department, agreed with Nelson's claim that the crowd of witnesses recording video and speaking to the police made it, quote unquote, difficult for Siobhan to provide medical aid during the arrest. And Lieutenant Johnny Mercil, a use of force instructor with the Minneapolis Police Department, testified that the neck restraint Siobhan use on Floyd was not authorized because George Floyd was already handcuffed and under control. Siobhan's defense tried to make the case that he needed to use that amount of force because George Floyd was allegedly being aggressive. Okay, you're being aggressive, you're on the ground, um, you can't breathe, you've passed out. Anyhow, uh, meanwhile, while examining a photo of Siobhan pinning George Floyd to the ground, Lieutenant Marcel told prosecutors that Siobhan's position was not consistent with the Minneapolis Police Department's training on the use of force, and that furthermore, Lieutenant Marcel pointed out that officers are trained to use the lowest level of force possible when controlling uh, someone. I would now like to welcome our guests to discuss all of this and put it in a broader context for us as well. Uh, Carissa Lewis is the National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives, which is a coalition of more than 50 groups representing the interests of black communities across the United States. Carissa, welcome. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Uh, Okay, so Carissa, first off, uh, your response to this story of the bystanders being blamed basically for George Floyd's death and also this business about excited delirium, that excited delirium argument. Carissa. You know, I, I, I think this trial is encapsulating um, some of the larger problems with what folks call the criminal justice system um, in that we all watch a man be murdered on on, on television, on, on video, 
and and yet the the defense is putting forward you know that the the crowd was um, unruly and distracting and I think this just calls into question the role you know the larger role of policing that we have been trying to really bring folks uh, closer to examination around um, because you know Derek Chauvin's hand was in his pocket that is that is not a symbol of um, anxiousness that is not a symbol of um, trying to uh, you know de-escalate um, the situation that is a relaxed demeanor um, as he killed uh, George Floyd and it's devastating it's devastating for folks in Minneapolis to relive through it's devastating for folks across the country who took action in support of justice for George Floyd yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you, you likely, I know I certainly, uh, along, along with a lot of black people, but generally people of goodwill across the country, are being re-traumatized with this trial going on. It's, it's really difficult uh, to watch without uh, getting emotional. But part of it, if you're a black person, if you're a person of color, is just the risk that you feel. Everything that you do, in this skin, right? Um, you have to calculate how people are going to take it, what, how law enforcement is going to respond. And it doesn't matter. It could be walking down the street. It could be going into a store. It could be going to visit your doctor. Whatever it is, it's that constant stress, that constant reminder that you are a black person, you are a person of color living in the United States. And that uh, makes you automatically a threat Right. And I, I just wanted you to say a bit about that. And then the insult after watching uh, what myself and, and many consider to be a public lynching, you know, that uh, fomented protests on every continent across the world that, you know, the defense is now trying to blame onlookers, right, who were basically trying to get him to do the right thing. Carissa. Correct, including their own uh, fire, uh, fire department EMT from their own city, who customarily, if she had been on duty, could have potentially been called to that scene to administer medical support, and they were not even listening to to her. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, this this brings up trauma that lives deep in our bodies, um, deep deep in our bones. From, from both witnessing and and fighting for justice in cases that reside in our own communities, um, that, you know, uh, police officers acted in very egregious and harmful ways. You know, this is a microcosm of how black folks' lives are um, treated in, in this country. And as I stated before, you know, it is, it is devastating. Um, and so I think that's why uh, both our, our comrades in Minneapolis as well as black-led organizations across the country are really inviting us into reimagining public safety. If we have to rely on a, a force, a department, an agency that um, customarily um, harms black people uh, and often with no forms of accountability, and when accountability is sought, uh, it is 
at the hands of other police officers who are also ingrained in this line of thinking, that system is, is, is faltered. That system is faltered. We would not allow a corporation, we would not allow another public agency that has this devastating impact on, on folks, explicitly if they were white people, to persist. But because it's black folks, it is allowed to persist. Yeah, and, you know, I read an article earlier today that said, well, it was an opinion piece, that policing isn't on trial um, in, you know, in this case, and, and that's too bad it's not. But um, having said that, what, as the Movement for Black Lives, you're the national field director for the Movement for Black Lives, uh, what are some of the demands being put forward by this broad uh, movement? The context, of course, being the murder of George Floyd, but there is also the ongoing crisis with policing in Rochester, New York, and indeed <laughs> uh, Southern California, I mean, across the country. We see again and again and again and again um, the same issues. What are some of the demands being put forward by this movement to address some of this? Yes, yeah, so over, over the summer last year, as, as you're probably aware, many uh, of the organizations that are part of the movement for black lives started to call for defunding of the police. In short, that is divesting resources from harmful institutions and investing those resources into uh, systems and structures um, that, that keep our folks healthy. And so the short of that is really shifting the size, scale, and scope of policing. Do police need to get military-grade weapons from the military to police their own communities? No. Do, does all of all, so many pieces of our life have to be wrapped up in policing. Everything from mental health support to uh, having to name when you're, you, you have something that was stolen. You are required usually to contact the police before you can even file an insurance claim. The way that our world is wrapped around an ineffective system such as policing is, is pretty, pretty challenging for us to all navigate. And so, you know, what we are calling for is a defunding of the police. We are calling for a divestment from a system and investing in those systems. And there are examples of our folks actually meeting the needs that the police historically has failed to meet, including in California, uh, out of Sacramento, there's a, a group um, that started a project called MH First, where they are rapidly responding to uh, mental health crises uh, without uh, uh, police presence. So we know that we have the sharpness um, and the efficiency in our communities to meet some of the needs that, that our communities have without militarized forces, without out police officers who are armed and dangerous. Right now, there are a lot of people that I have heard from who are outraged by what happened with George Floyd, but they're skeptical about the demand for uh, defunding the police. And 
people ask questions like, is defunding the police the same thing as abolition? Um, you know, and we know that there are some cities that have been doing some defunding of the police and have not abolished them. And also in uh, Minneapolis itself, um, the Minneapolis City Council members promise to dismantle the city's police department and create a public safety system. That, however, has not yet happened. And, and there are a lot of uh, activists on the ground, part of the Black Lives Matter movement, because there's the organization and then there's the movement, who are upset about this. Um, your thoughts on defunding versus abolition, and just to clear that up for some people who are asking about that. Yes, yeah, so the Movement for Black Lives is an abolitionist organization. We do believe that systems that historically and presently cause harm to our people should not exist. We do think that abolition will not happen overnight. And abolition in, in and of itself is not just about the dismantling, but it's about the building of a new. And so we want to be safe in our communities. We want our people to be safe in our communities. And we want to explore together across the country what are ways that do that that are actually effective. If police kept us safe, if police deterred crime based on the per capita number of police in this country, we would be the safest and most uh, and, and country with the least amount of crime in the world. But what history has shown is that police actually don't play that role. And so we're interested in re-envisioning, reimagining a new process. And for us, that is a path towards abolition, where we build new structures of accountability, new structures of safety that keep us all safe and don't put black folks in, 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 in the crosshairs. Right. So what you're saying, it is it is a process. It's an ongoing process with that That's goal right. in mind. Uh, but meanwhile, um, also seemingly disconnected, but I think it's very connected with, with all of this in terms of the treatment of black people in the United States, uh, Carissa uh, Lewis, is what is happening uh, now with the, um, the Georgia's new election uh, law, a, a Jim Crow type law. And you see now Arizona and Texas moving in that same direction, and that there have been hundreds, actually, of, of these laws, according to the uh, Brennan Center, about 250 bills with restrictive uh, voting um, uh, provisions across the country. And meanwhile, the bill that is in the House, it, that is in Congress right now, that it's a question mark that's really trying to undo the damage that was done to the Voting Rights Act with the Supreme Court uh, 2013 decision gunning a key section of the Voting Rights Act that it looks, it's a little unclear if that legislation would actually uh, get through. You have people like uh, Senator Manchin, who has outsized clout right now in the Senate, saying, well, he's not going to vote for it unless Republicans come on board, interestingly, because it's Republicans that are pushing uh, these voter suppression laws. So I wondered if you uh, wanted to comment on that and connect the dots a bit, because I, I think there is a connection uh, between what happens to somebody like George Floyd and these these attempts, and also the the idea that even in the March 
of the January 6th invasion in the U.S. Capitol that a study is now showing that a lot of uh, the people who participated participated not because they were feeling economically oppressed, as some people have said, but because they're feeling that as white people, they're under threat as people of color um, make our demands and, um, you know, battle for our rights. Your thoughts on, on all of this? Yes. What we're clear about and what the Republicans are also clear about is the electorate is changing. And unless they are able to steal, cheat, and lie their way into winning seats, uh, both at the state level and federal level, uh, they will they will be they will continue to lose, and so they are doing everything in their uh, power, whether it is considered legal or not, to make sure that the changing electorate loses their voice. Right, and and what I'm clear about is we actually don't have true democracy, even based on the the redistricting, based on all of the. Um, uh, voter suppression laws that have existed. They are ramping up those laws, but even before this election, um, we know that um, there has been mass voter suppression in our communities um, because folks are scared, right? They're scared of us um, building power. They're scared of us moving in collective and, and vision-led ways. Um, and so, you know, I, we, we have a, a group inside of the Movement for Black Lives called the Electoral Justice Project that actually uh, one of our anchor organizations just helped to get Tashara um, elected. It's our, our, our C, some of our C4 work. And, you know, this we are up to a lot of things. You know, we, we both are invested in defunding the police, but we're also invested in creating conditions where our folks um, have justice in the electoral arena. And so you're right, it, it all is connected. It, all of it is fashioned in a way to silence um, and to limit our power as, as black, black folks. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we take the, the language of, of Malcolm X uh, very seriously when he says by any means necessary. That means by all the means. That means electoral strategies. That means protest. That means policy change like the Breathe Act that we, that we are introducing um, that looks at divesting at the federal level. Uh, and so we're going to continue to do that work because it's necessary for us to live thriving and healthy lives in this country. Yes, and Carissa, um, really important work uh, happening that you all are involved in for people who want to uh, find out more about the movement for Black Lives and who want to support uh, the various initiatives of which there's several that you that the movement for Black Lives is involved in. Um, what should they do? Uh, yeah, they can go to our website. It's m for b l the number four m for b l dot uh, org. They can check us out on all our social media platforms, and they can text DEFEND to 90975. Right. Well, Carissa Lewis, National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives, thank you so very much for joining us, and we certainly hope that you will return to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
All righty. Uh, we're going to take our station break now. And when we return, our weekly Earth Minute, but also the crisis in Yemen, Yemeni children starving uh, to death and a proxy war going on there. And also the Biden administration making an all-out effort to encourage people of color to get vaccinated. This, as experts are worrying about the spiking that's going on now, cases going up, deaths are going up uh, due to the coronavirus. So stay with us. We'll be right back. City of the angels, spread your wings for me. the great uh, Bill Withers, City of the Angels. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in New Jersey, the great state of New Jersey and international. Nationally, we would like to give a shout out to all of our listeners in the country of South Africa. And uh, we are going coming up um, our weekly Earth Minute. And following that, um, what is happening with Yemen? Why are so many millions of children at risk of starving to death in the midst of a proxy war? And also COVID-19, the latest on what the Biden administration is trying to do in communities of color. Our weekly Earth Minute. The U.S.-based company Corteva has genetically engineered a variety of maize using the gene editing technique CRISPR. This variety, known as waxy corn, originates in East and Southeast Asia, where it is a major food crop. In the U.S., it is a minor crop grown almost entirely for food starch and some industrial products. So far, this waxy corn has been approved by Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, and the United States. It is the first genetically engineered crop from Corteva, who is using the variant to test out the regulation of and public response to the new genetic engineering technique of CRISPR. According to Grain, a successful introduction in the U.S. will set the stage for commercial cultivation and imports in other countries where regulations on GM crops and the new genome-edited GM crops are still in flux. The biotechnology industry argues that gene editing should not be classified as genetic modification and should not be regulated or labeled. This, however, deliberately ignores the risks and unexpected consequences from gene editing. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church with Global Justice Ecology Project. Right, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth between 2014 and 2015. The Houthis, uh, who are based in Yemen, 
took over uh, the government in Sana'a, Yemen's capital, and announced the end of the controversial um, government of a president, who, uh, Hadi, who was aligned with Saudi Arabia. The Houthis say the legality of Hadi's presidency um, was challenged because he was the only candidate in Yemen's 2012 election. and. Um, in many ways remains a de facto head of state. Now, since 2015, Saudi Arabia and its allies, including the United States, the UK, France, Canada, and several wealthy Gulf, Gulf states have consistently launched airstrikes into Yemen. Thousands have been killed. Also, Saudi Arabia established an economic uh, blockade against uh, Yemen that many are, are blaming uh, for the deep, deep crisis of hunger, in particular among children, clearly not only uh, children uh, who are suffering. And on eight, Tuesday, April 6th, the 2021, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation Demand Progress and Just Foreign Policy sent a letter to President Joe Biden calling for an end to the Saudi blockade of Yemen. They were joined by actor and humanitarian Mark Ruffalo, dozens of celebrities, and more than 70 national organizations. Now, in addition to thanking uh, President Biden for taking critical first steps, but only first steps, towards peace and food security in Yemen, including an announced end to offensive U.S. military participation in Saudi and Emirati-led coalition actions, also a review of weapons sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for their use in their six-year war in Yemen, and a revocation of Donald Trump's terrorism designations against the Houthis with the express purpose of averting a hunger crisis. However, much more needs to be done. A coalition of human rights organizations have expressed deep concern over the fact that no U.S. official in the new, new administration has explicitly publicly acknowledged the six-year-old Saudi-imposed blockade or criticized it. Now, um, we have been uh, covering the situation and a proxy war uh, going on, of course, Saudi Arabia um, very much uh, wanting to undermine uh, Iran and, in fact, um, uh, just uh, breaking news on Wednesday, April 7th, an Iranian cargo ship anchored for years in the Red Sea off Yemen was attacked in a mine blast. This, according to Associated Press. Now, foreign Iran's foreign ministry, they have confirmed uh, the attack and they have uh, blamed the attack on Israel. Um, although there's no official uh, statement uh, by Iran uh, blaming Israel, but uh, the New York Times has quoted an unnamed U.S. official as saying that Israel had informed the U.S. that its forces attacked the vessel. So this just really ups the ante in terms of what is going on uh, in Yemen, but uh, also setting the stage to understand the devastation of what's happening there. Let us go to a clip uh, from CNN on Yemeni children. This is how Ahmed Helmi spends his days, lying on the concrete floor, trying to swat away the flies with what little energy he has. 
Looking at his tiny body, ravaged by hunger, you would never guess that Ahmed is five years old. His brother died of malnutrition two months ago. We're in a war. There's no food, no water, his mother Sumaya says. Only God knows our pain. It's a pain shared by too many here. In the same small village, we meet Abdul Rahman, an overwhelmed father of five. He's worried about his son, Abdul Wahab. There's no doctor nearby and no scale. But he can't weigh more than five pounds. The problem is that my wife doesn't have a lot of breast milk, he says. She's sick too. And it's not hard to see why. There's almost no food in it. So they have some bread. Some onions. No meat. Hunger has always been a problem in Yemen, but two and a half years of war has starved the country. Three million people are displaced. Many live in filthy camps where disease and infection are rife and malnutrition difficult to combat. There is food in the markets. It's just that few people can actually afford it. And that's what's so tough to get your head around about this crisis. It's not caused by a bad harvest or a drought. It's caused by man. A Saudi Arabia-led blockade has cut the amount of food and medicine getting into Yemen by more than half. What does come through is heavily taxed along the way. Rural clinics struggle to meet the scale of the need. Ten-month-old Ali has gained seven ounces since his last visit, a welcome improvement, but he is still suffering from severe malnutrition. All righty, I'd like to welcome our guest now, uh, Iman Salah, member of the Yemeni Liberation Movement, which educates and mobilizes Yemenis and all communities for an end to the war on Yemen. Iman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so um, according to the uh, World Food Program, Yemen is heading toward the largest famine in modern history. It's really hard uh, to wrap our heads around the devastation that's uh, happening in Yemen. Uh, just uh, your thoughts on the cause of this, and do you agree that this is fundamentally uh, a proxy war, even though, of course, there are forces within Yemen uh, that have uh, their cause for their own liberation. Your assessment of the situation. Yeah, so as part of the, the YLM, we um, keep our focus on, uh, you know, we're in the belly of the beast, so we keep our focus on, uh, you know, foreign intervention in Yemen and, um, you know, U.S. imperialism. Uh, this is the proxy war. Um, and this is caused by the foreign intervention that Saudi has been placing on its people. Um, and and uh, when you see children starving, when you see people dying in airstrikes, uh, uh, bombarding people, um, you know, you, you're going to see effects of, of uh, the violence um, internally within, within the country of Yemen of, of uh, people trying to defend themselves and whatever that, you know, what in, in any way that means. Um, our focus here, though, is uh, the United States part 
uh, in this war. And, uh, and, and by any means, starvation should never be used as a war tactic. Um, it's, it's an illegal humanitarian war crime. Um, and so when uh, the UN announces that uh, this is uh, heading towards the, you know, the, the world's worst humanitarian crisis, it's not heading there. It's, it's there right now. They are in the thick of it. Um, when they announce that 400,000 children will die uh, due to this fuel blockade that uh, the Saudi uh, UAE coalition has implemented, they said that in the sense that within the first few weeks or months that it would be implemented that those kids will die. Um, and But we've already passed those weeks and months, and we believe those children uh, have already died. Just horrific, just horrific. Now in the U.S., a group of activists are participating in a hunger strike to stop U.S. backing of Saudi Arabia in Yemen. Uh, tell us what do you think the Biden administration should be doing now? Yeah, so we're on our 10th day of this hunger strike. Um, I uh, am really feeling it today. Uh, I'd say today is the worst day right now for me. Um, and that we have two very reasonable, um, uh, you know, accomplishable demands. Uh, you know, one of them is for the Biden administration to publicly acknowledge and uh, call an end for the blockade. Uh, and the other one is for the United States to end all support, all material and military support to the Saudi-led blockade. Um, and uh, because without the United States support, the Saudi-led coalition would just crumble. It would not be able to sustain uh, this blockade or this war. Right. So as I said earlier, I mean, the Biden administration, they have, um, you know, taken some first steps, right, in terms of, of what they have done. Uh, but generally, the, there is a view that the Biden that the administration continues to be too soft on Saudi Arabia. And I'm wondering, your thoughts on now this attack on the Iranian ship? That ship was said to house uh, troops that are supporting uh, the efforts of the Houthis in Yemen. Um, do you think that that will further inflame the situation? Just give us your final thoughts on this. Yeah, I do believe, um, I, in terms of the the Iran rhetoric and the um, the situation with the illegitimate state of Israel, uh, we don't we don't engage in that rhetoric. We don't try to um, uh, encourage any continued actions by the Saudi-led uh, uh, the Saudi-led coalition. Um, what we do believe is that Yemenis have the right to self-determination, um, and because we, you know, despite the fact that I'm Yemeni um, and living in the states. I don't have the right to, uh, you know, uh, announce the politics of what should be happening to Yemen unless the people in Yemen have that right to say for themselves. Absolutely. And for people who want to find out more about the hunger strike, perhaps participate or to support um, your efforts, what should they do? So we need everybody to be supporting us with this hunger strike. I mean, we, we, uh, we're on our 10th day. Um, and we need everybody to understand what the situation is going on in Yemen. Um, we, have, we have social media, we have Instagram and Twitter um, that you can follow us on, um, but we really need everybody to pressure their local representatives um, in order to pressure the Biden administration to call an end to this war. We're at a full circle right now. So it's, it's been three administrations um, that this war has been going on under Obama and the Biden, then through Trump, and now back under Biden. 
Um, and so these little steps that he's, have, he's, he's taken um, is just simply not enough. We really need to end this war. We're in an emergency situation, um, and, and we're really hoping that people can understand the severity of, of where Yemen is at, is at right now. Right. Is, is there a website or a place people can go to get more information? Yeah, so we actually operate uh, mostly out of our Twitter and Instagram. So if you follow us, um, both under the name Yemeni Liberation Movement, Y-E-M-E-N-I, Liberation Movement, you'll find all of our information there, what we're doing next, and also daily reflections of what it's like going through a hunger strike. All right, well, please continue to keep us posted, and thank you so very much uh, for joining us, Iman Sela. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All righty. And just wrapping up our show now, um, we return to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and crisis. A lot of people are thinking, well, um, we've reached the end of the road. There's, you know, there's hope The states are opening up. Um, the United States is on track to vaccinate half of all adults by the weekend with at least one COVID-19 shot, according to a White House advisor. Um, and the Biden administration has set the goal for every state to open vaccination to all adults who want them by April 19th, um, which is, uh, some are saying, are easier as the supply and accessibility of vaccines increases. However, uh, meanwhile, we see that although the number of cases have uh, dropped, right, um, that we're now seeing a disturbing rise in cases, particularly um, in five states where there is a spike uh, going on in, um, in um, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, Florida, and Pennsylvania. And FEMA has also stepped up a program to reach communities of color hardest hit by the pandemic. Uh, due to historical mistreatment of indigenous and black people by the healthcare industry, including past government policies, there is, there still remains a hesitancy among some of those communities to get vaccinated. But let us go to a couple of clips. First, we'll hear what uh, President Biden has had to say, and then uh, what some healthcare workers in Michigan have to say about what's going on. Over the, no later than April 19th, in every part of this country, every adult over the age of 18, 18 or older will be eligible to be vaccinated. I understand that people may find it confusing that the vaccination program is saving tens of thousands of lives, but the pandemic remains dangerous. Let me explain it in a single word. Time. Time. Even moving at the record speed we're moving at, we're not even halfway through vaccinating over 300 million Americans. This is going to take time. The virus is spreading because we have too many people who, seeing the end in sight, think we're at the finish line already. But let me be deadly earnest with you. We aren't at the finish line. We still have a lot of work to do. We're not to where we were back in November, December, but I would say that the um, the rate of increase seems more drastic than it did back then. At Lansing's Sparrow Health System, COVID-19 admissions have risen 600% in a month. So we're trying to see where we can pull extra staff from. The hospital had disbanded its COVID incident command center with cases piling up. They've reestablished it. In December, we had a high of close to 150 patients. Right now, we have 95. 
and at the rate it's going, if it doesn't abate, we'll be at 150 patients in 15 days. 15 days? Yes. And do you know where the top of the, the we curve We do not is? know where the top of the curve is. Yeah. Dr. Justin Skrzynski specializes in caring for patients with COVID at Beaumont Health Royal Oak, part of the largest healthcare system in Michigan. COVID tests of some patients sent for DNA analysis indicate a worrying sign. A sharp increase in the new, more contagious, possibly more lethal B117 variant. 22 years a registered nurse? Yes. How hard has the last year been? Harder. Why? Because people are dying. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why is this so hard to talk about? Because I just saw it yesterday. What did you see? I had a patient that passed. The weight of so much sickness and death, that burden getting only heavier. All righty, I'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Latandra Hopes, Media Relations Specialist for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, known as FEMA. Uh, Latandra, I hope I, I got your name right there. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. All righty. So tell us a bit about what you are doing, because you are out there trying to save lives as part of what the Biden administration is doing. And I know that there are listeners in Southern California, but also Sojourner Truth listeners across the country who are people of color who are, you know, maybe a bit hesitancy. They think of what happened with a Tuskegee experiment, um, the inequality in, in health care and generally the feeling that, you know, the for some for reasons that you and I likely know that there have been uh, past practices that have been problematic and therefore they are hesitant uh, to get this COVID uh, vaccine. Uh, Latanya, what what do you say to those people? I think the key word that you honed, on, honed in on was past practices. This is a new day and a new era. We have a president that is using a whole government approach um, we are here at the request of the governor of California, and we are working with um, partner agencies for Cal OES. And what we're doing is we're providing vaccinations in some of the hardest-hit communities. Um, matter of fact, we have provided over 300,000 vaccinations within the time frame that we've been here. This is a federally-funded program. It's a pilot program, the first in the nation. And the inclusion means that we are making sure that anybody that wants a vaccination will have the opportunity to get one. Right. And for people who are listening out there now, uh, perhaps right now you are based in Southern California. That is um, your area, right? But we want this message also for people all across the country because you couldn't help, uh, Latanya, to be emotional listening to healthcare workers talking about in one hospital in Michigan, a 600% uh, rise in COVID cases, a nurse weeping about the, the deaths that are beginning to Spike. So, uh, you know, some people are kind of resting on their laurels and saying, well, the, you know, there are a lot of vaccines being given out, et cetera. And, uh, you know, perhaps we could skip uh, getting one um, because things seem to be dying down in terms of the impact of, of the virus. But um, 
you know, your response to that. And for people who now want to be vaccinated, what should they do? Yeah, I like the fact that you said that there are people that want to be vaccinated because it eliminates um, the thought that there may be hesitancy. There are a lot of people that have become proactive. As you continue to work to get vaccinated, we're looking to continue to build herd immunity. And with each person that gets vaccinated and continues to be vigilant, continue with hand washing, continue wearing your mask, continuing with six feet of distancing, um, those things will help us to continue to fight to the end. And what we want to make sure is that if there's support that's needed, that you would check with the CDC, check with your local agencies to find out if there's anything else that you can do. Um, as you mentioned, this message is for people that are not just here in Los Angeles that are participating in the pilot program. This is for people in small town USA. This is something that we're doing as a whole community, a whole government approach, and it's going to take each and every person um, to stand vigilantly to make sure that we are able to overcome this. Right. And uh, also, there is the, the one shot, the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine out now. We know Pfizer and Moderna, the, those are the, the two shots. And some people are saying, well, the Johnson & Johnson, they're, they're, in developing their vaccine, they use the much more traditional methods of creating the vaccine as previous uh, vaccines. So is the Johnson & Johnson, uh, the one shot uh, vaccine, something that uh, you all are now encouraging uh, people to get? Not that you're discouraging people from the other vaccines, but uh, just finally tell us a little about that. And also, if people want to participate or find out about your pilot program, what they should do, Tanya hopes. So we call Johnson & Johnson the one, the one and done shot. But any vaccination that you can get is a good vaccination. And the reason why is because all of the vaccinations are over 80% effective. When you think about the fact that the vaccination provides you with a defense that keeps you out of the hospital and prevents death, any vaccination will do for the reasonable person. So what we would usually do is provide you with information about the shots that we're providing. We started off with Pfizer at the pilot program that we're currently continuing to work through. We've now transitioned and we're using Johnson & Johnson and what we found, again, is that there is no hesitancy. People are being proactive. They're getting to the website. They're calling the phone numbers, and they're getting in line. And the goal for the program, um, the cliche that we use is that we're not helping people get ahead of the line. We're just merely helping them get in line to get this vaccination. And I think that when you use the, the Johnson & Johnson, you do the one and done. It's highly effective in getting people in and getting them out. They don't have to return for a second shot. Right. Okay. Well, on that note, um, you know, we certainly hope people will continue to wear their masks, continue to wash their hands. I'm sure you will agree and, and take every uh, precaution. But we want to thank you, uh, Latanya Hopes, uh, for your efforts in this particular uh, pilot program trying to reach especially hard-hit communities. Thank you so very much for joining us. Okay. Pandemic. Good back for meeting. Thank you. 
All righty. And unfortunately, we, we are out of time. Um, today's show produced, but I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Keanu Williams, our system producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Thank you for listening. And you all, please stay safe.